We all love a good redemption story, don't we? You know what I'm talking about. It's a story about that man or that woman that seems all washed up and everybody's given up on, but then they, they finally turn it around and they finally become the person that everyone secretly hoped they would or they could be. We love stories like that. There's lots of examples, especially when it comes to movies about sports. Take the movie Hoosiers, for example. It's the story of a basketball coach named Norman Dale, who once coached college basketball, but then he got banned for hitting one of his own players. So years later, all washed up now, he hasn't coached for 10, 12 years, I think, he gets a job as a high school coach in this little tiny town of Hickory, Indiana. And when Dale first begins coaching, things do not look promising. On the very first day of practice, he angers two of his players on his team, he only has six of them, leaving him with a squad of four mediocre players. And then, after that, he tries to make them play a style of basketball that they're really not used to, which makes it harder for them to compete. And then if that weren't enough, he decides to hire the town drunk as his assistant coach. Like I said, it's not a promising start. A mediocre team, a washed up coach, and an alcoholic assistant. In the beginning of the movie, it all seems pretty hopeless. And most of the people in the town, they're tempted to just give up on the basketball team, ever amounting to anything. They remember the glory days, but they think this present team has very little promise. But then things start to change. The team gets better and more confident, and they start winning. And the, the drunk shooter, he starts to sober up and he puts on a suit and he begins to act like a real coach. And then, well, I, you know, I'm sure you've seen it. You know what happens. This tiny little town of Hickory, their high school goes all the way to the state championship and they win it all. And the crowd goes wild. It, it's a great story. And what makes it so great isn't just that it has good characters or that it tells a story of victory. No, what makes this movie so great is that it's a story of redemption. It's a story about a bunch of people that everybody's given up on. A bunch of people who seem like they'll never really amount to anything. It's a story about them being restored, about their redemption. And these people finally doing what it is that they were truly made to do, this basketball team living in to what their purpose is. But Hoosiers, Hoosiers is not the only such story of redemption. In the book of Isaiah, we find a very similar story emerging, a story of a people who seem to have utterly and entirely failed at their purpose, a people that we're really tempted to give up on them. But then, here comes Isaiah, this prophet, bringing the good news that these people, they too are going to be restored. That even if others have given up on them, even if they themselves feel like giving up, God has not given up. God has come to turn their story around from one of defeat to one of victory. Now, perhaps this seems a little surprising to say. 
After all, if there's anything that we've learned in the first three sessions of this study, is that the prophet Isaiah seems very preoccupied with all the faults and the failures of the Jewish people and the coming judgment of God. If Isaiah made an appearance in the movie Hoosiers, you'd kind of expect him to be, you know, some pessimistic townsperson, some guy down at the bar who only shows up to the basketball games to call out the shortcomings of the coach and the team and tell them how they're sure to lose. At least that's how it often feels in the first half of this book. But then, you know, something changes when you get to chapter 40. If you've ever been to a performance of Handel's Messiah, you'll know the part that I'm talking about. It actually comes in the first vocal movement of the oratio, when the tenor begins to sing the words of Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, a couple of things are worth noticing about these verses. First, although they're not the first words of hope that we find in Isaiah, their tone is very distinctive from what we've come to expect. Isaiah's message has been largely one of critique, but now his mandate is different. Now he is asked not to criticize, but to comfort. At the same time, it seems that the condition of Isaiah's listeners have changed. Because, you know, up until this point, Isaiah, the son of Amos, as we read about him, were introduced in the very first chapter. Up until this point, he has been prophesying about a coming judgment. And so when you first read these words, you might be inclined to think that maybe God has changed his mind. Maybe what Isaiah is saying is that he won't bring that judgment after all. But that's not really what Isaiah says. He says that the judgment has already come but now it has come to an end. Jerusalem, he says, has experienced warfare. She has received from God the consequences of her sins. That's one of the major reasons that many scholars think that someone other than Isaiah actually wrote these words, that they were the words of a later prophet who was delivering God's word, not to the people of Judah before they were conquered like Isaiah, but rather to a later generation of Jews who had already been conquered and were now living in exile in Babylon. Just think of the book of Daniel and what's going on there. Now, earlier commentators, such as John Calvin, he thought that Isaiah himself was the one that spoke these words, but he spoke them in a kind of dream and in anticipation of these future generations. Isaiah was in fact speaking to a future audience. Now, either way, it's clear that this message of comfort is being sent to a people who, a people who are languishing, a people in despair, a people who probably feel tempted to give up entirely. It is to them, in their moment of despair, to them this word comes. To quote the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, at long last, when all seemed lost, now speaks the Holy One of Israel. This speech breaks both the despair of Judah and the power of Babylon. 
It penetrates the emptiness of exile and fills the world of Judaism with possibilities heretofore unanticipated, but now available in divine decree. But what exactly is this word of comfort? And why should these Jews who are living in exile, why should they believe it? On what basis can Isaiah say such things to a people in such a condition? Well, let me take up the first question, the, the question of what's the content of this message? Now, it's clear from just these two verses that one of the, the key elements in Isaiah's message is that the judgment against Judah is coming to an end, that sins have been paid for, that there is forgiveness, the warfare is ended. But that's not all. The comfort that Isaiah brings is not just a message of relief for a people in exile, not just a message of the forgiveness of sins. No, it goes deeper than that. What Isaiah says to them is that even though they have utterly failed, and even though judgment has come against them because of that failure, that God has not given up on them as a people, that he called them, that God himself gave them a purpose, and that he intends for them still to fulfill that purpose. And that's why a couple chapters later, God addresses the people of Israel and he calls them, he calls them this interesting term. He calls them his servant. What does Isaiah say? But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now, you may remember that when God called Abraham, the forefather of this people of Israel, way back in Genesis chapter 12, you might remember that he promised to bless them and that he promised Abraham not only that he would bless him and his family, but that all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. And now in this part of Isaiah, God is reminding the Jews of that call and of that purpose. He's reminding them of this incredibly high vocation that they have. I called you, he's saying, you are my servant. You are the ones whom I have chosen to bless and you're the ones I have chosen to be the instrument of my blessing to the nations. You are my witnesses, as he says in chapter 43. That is your purpose. That's what I chose you for. But of course, that's not an easy message to hear when you're just a bunch of Jews living in obscurity in Babylon as a consequence of just how badly you failed. It's almost as if that coach Norman Dale tried to comfort his basketball team these four mediocre players in a town drunk by telling them that, you know, he chose to be their coach because they are a championship team. How in the world can this people, this people of Judah, these Israelites, how can they be God's chosen servant and witnesses, his instrument of blessing to the nations? They can't even obey God's most basic commandments. There is a dilemma here. As one biblical scholar puts it, the description of the servant's role doesn't look like one that Israel can fulfill. Readers already know that Israel is blind and in captivity, 
And a deaf and blind servant is itself in need of a servant's ministry. It cannot exercise that ministry. So that brings us to our second question about these words of comfort, this announcement of comfort. On what basis should anyone believe it? it? Sounds all well and good for Isaiah to say that Israel is God's chosen and blessed servant. But why should a bunch of inept, blind, deaf, unjust, and idolatrous Jews think that this vision is still a possibility for them? You might think that Isaiah would answer this question with just some encouraging words about Israel's hidden potential or maybe their innate capacity. You know, if they could just dream bigger, if they could just work harder. Come on, you guys. You can do it if you just put your minds to it. Or maybe Isaiah could, you know, channel his inner Zig Ziglar, say something like, if you can dream it, you can achieve it. But that's not what Isaiah says, is it? No. The consistent message for the first 39 chapters of this book have been that Israel cannot, in fact, live into their purpose. That all of their efforts, all of their attempts, all of their good deeds are, as Isaiah will later say in chapter 64, that they are all nothing more than filthy rags polluted by Israel's sin. So no, on their own, they can't do it. Dreaming big and working hard isn't enough. And that's not what Isaiah is saying. If you pay attention, when you read Isaiah chapter 40 and 41, 42, 43, all the way up through chapter 48, the clear message is that the basis of Israel's comfort, the reason that they should have hope, it's not their own ability, but it is the power of God's own word. God has declared that his people are, in fact, his chosen servant. And he, he himself, he says, he will be the one to make it happen. As we read in Isaiah chapter 43, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and proclaimed when there was no stranger God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can take it back? This was the word of comfort that Isaiah brought to the Jewish people when they were in exile. That was Isaiah's good news. That was Isaiah's gospel. And you know what? That is the same gospel that we as Christians proclaim today. When Jesus came announcing the good news of the kingdom, his message was a word of comfort, just like Isaiah's. And like Isaiah's, it was a message of the forgiveness of sins, of the relief from past guilt. Your sins are forgiven, Jesus says. But Jesus' good news, his gospel, wasn't just an announcement of forgiveness. It was also an announcement that despite all of our many failures, that God is in Christ making a new people, a people who will be his servant and his witnesses in the world. 
And just like that ragtag bunch of high schoolers and Hoosiers, we as Christians, we have a purpose, just like that basketball team. We have a mission. We have a calling, which is to bear witness to what God has done in Christ and to be a blessing, just like he told Abraham, to be a blessing to all the nations, to be the agents of God in the world. But of course, just as Isaiah told those ancient Jews, whether or not we succeed at this mission has really little to do with how determined or how intelligent or how strategic we are. Sometimes that tends to be where we find comfort. We find comfort in ourselves and in our own plans. But that's not the basis for comfort in this book. Isaiah was clear. God's people are weak and they are inept. They tend toward blindness and stupidity. But where we fail, God succeeds. God has chosen a people to be his servant and his witnesses. And he, he says, he himself, he will ensure their success. Uh, to quote the recently deceased Anglican theologian, John Webster. We may comfort ourselves by attempting to change things, by struggling for a world that's more comfortable. Comfort then becomes something we can manage, an attainment within our sphere of competence. Work hard enough, live diligently in the right way, and comfort will be yours. But Isaiah's comfort isn't fantasy, and it isn't a human project. It's that which God speaks. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The prophet's voice, the tender cry to Jerusalem, is the speech of God himself, a voice speaking in God's name, by God's enabling, with God's authority. In the midst of despair, a word came to Isaiah. It was a word of comfort. God himself, the Holy One of Israel, was coming to his people, and he was going to transform them to be the servant that they had utterly failed to be. That's the good news of Isaiah, and that is the good news of Jesus Christ. 